0: Upon taking his leave from Les notres, Andre goes off to the Royal Reception, or Louvre. At first he was part of a general audience of military officials and dignitaries, before the last Holy Roman Emperor, Francis II. And since Tolstoy makes him a character, here's a little bit of background about him. He was born in Florence in 1768 and died at age 67 in Vienna. He was Holy Roman Emperor from 1792 to 1806, and the book right now is in November of 1805. He was also Francis I, the premier emperor of Austria from 1804 to 1835. For one, in his privileged station, he was said to have a traditional sense of duty. As a leader, he was something of a patron of the arts, and also someone who was able to adapt to the times in terms of scientific advances, where he fostered the development of railroads and sanctioned the use of steamships on the Danube. His reputation is also influenced by his chief minister or diplomat, Prince von Metternich, who often pushed back against liberal reforms and additionally took efforts to restore the power of the Roman Catholic Church. Now back to the story. Tolstoy's presentation of Francis, while he's entertaining Andre more privately, portrays him as lacking confidence and just making banal conversation. He poses questions such as, When did the Battle of Durenstein begin? Was Kutuzov well? How long was it since Andre left the field? And most significantly, at what time was General Schmidt killed? When Andre replied at seven, Francis noted how very sad that was. Perhaps implied there is that by seven it was rather late in the day, and it was at a time where the French were retreating. The Emperor then presented Andre with an award admission to the Maria Theresia Order of the Third Class. Maria Theresia was the ruler of the Habsburg monarchy from seventeen forty to seventeen eighty. She was the sovereign of Austria, Hungary, Bohemia, Transylvania, Milan, the Austrian Netherlands, and Galicia, which is very important to Ukrainian history, as this involves modern-day Western Ukraine in the area of Lviv. This award was quite a high one in the Habsburg monarchy. It was to honor merit and valor of commissioned officers who were usually part of the Austrian forces, but there was a degree of liberality when necessity demanded and Austria tied its fate to alliances. Tsar Alexander was presented with a version of one, as well as Pyotr Bagration, who has been referenced as commanding Kutuzov's rearguard forces. Andre would have most likely received the Knight's Cross version of that award, as that's what a number of British officers received when fighting with Austria in 1794. Once Andre was so honored, he was swarmed with dignitaries and other guests. The minister of war, who was referenced a few chapters ago, congratulated him. The empress's chambermaid even invited him to meet her majesty, Maria Theresia of the two Sicilies. So the news he brought of the victory at Durinstein was hailed, at least superficially. A Thanksgiving service was arranged, where Kutuzov was granted an honor in absentia. This was the greeting Andrei originally expected, but something didn't sit right with it. He started feeling the guilt of being away from the men who have to fight and die and being regaled and entertained by the superficial and elite types who get to live this fantasy lifestyle. The Russian ambassador eventually drew him away from the fray and he was able to leave and walk back to his friend Belieben's. Tolstoy even throws in his obvious love of literature as he has Andrei pass a bookstore near Belieben's, a quaint little Austrian shop in Brunn. But something catches his eye. He sees Belieben's servant fervently packing a large chest, and he doesn't notice, but all around him the same thing is going on where the high officials of Austria who occupied Brun are once again leaving. Belieben comes out and informs Andre that Napoleon's men are at their heels. From Vienna, his forces now have their eyes set on Brun. Belieben then references the infamous affair at the Tabor Bridge, which were introduced as rumors in the last chapter. Not only had Napoleon been at Schonbrunn, the magnificent palace, but his grand Armée crossed a critical series of bridges that put them on a path to catch up with all those forces, Austrian and Russian, that had been so vigorously retreating from him, all this without a shot fired. Belieben explains that French troops under the command of Marshal Jean Lannes and Joachim Morat utilized chicanery and genius to traverse the Danube bridges at the east end of Vienna, and that the man in charge of defending the crossings, first Karl Joseph Franz von Ausburg failed miserably. Now, who was Auschberg? The Auschbergs were an Austrian princely family. They held estates or lands in the Holy Roman Empire in the area of what is today Slovenia. And if you rose within this family, you could hold the title of Count of Auschberg. Again, back to the story. The final crossing, known as the Spitzbridge Bridge, was rigged with explosives, but was never ignited, and Murat, with his cavalry, is headed to Brun, and will be there that day or on the morrow. As you could imagine, the city of Vienna, as well as the Danube River, looked quite different in 1805 as compared to today, as there have been wondrous advances in modern engineering, including dredging. So the Tabor crossing was essentially a series of three bridges, and the one nearest Vienna was what you might associate in your mind as a typical classic European bridge of the era. That area of the Danube was characterized by a shallow marsh area, and various natural islands made that series of bridges possible. The goal of the first two was that they would have few frills but would be functional. But the last, that spitz bridge, was heavily guarded and rigged with those explosives. There was artillery and riflemen ready to open fire if the enemy exposed himself and the equivalent of an explosive team ready to ignite it. The big countervailing consideration was it was well known there could be a treaty signed at any point. Lan and Morat took advantage of that. Belieben explains that these gentlemen these French generals walked on to the bridge with their white handkerchiefs exposed, assuring the Austrians that there was a truce and that they came to parley with Field Marshal Augsburg, relaying a thousand absurdities such as the war being over, that Francis had arranged a meeting with Bonaparte and that they were there in the name of peace and used flowery language of this nature. My dear enemy... Flower of Austrian chivalry, hero of the Turkish wars, hostilities are at an end. So instead of the Austrians opening fire on the French, more and more French make their way onto the bridge and they chat, smoke, embrace. All the while, droves of French forces creep up closer and closer. They wind up in complete control of the critical crossing and fling the explosives into the river. Historically, it appears that Auerchberg wasn't there at the beginning of this ruse, but was summoned. Belieben has Auerchberg flattered, bewildered, and dazzled by the spectacle of Murat's uniform with ostrich plumes. They forgot that they should be firing away at the French. Belieben relays that one Austrian sergeant could sense the danger and spoke up. But the French, and historically this was Jean Long told Auschberg not to let the subordinate speak to him in such an obstinate manner. Belieben acknowledges the sheer genius of the charade, and even warrants comparison to Homer's Trojan horse. It's part of military lore, and while all the details can't be precise, the substance speaks to an incredible feat that is mostly attributed to Lan. He was born in Gascony in 1769, Lannes' nickname was the Achilles of the Grand Armée. He was daring, talented, and a personal friend of Napoleon. He came from humble beginnings, the son of a small landowner and merchant. He had very little in the way of a formal aristocratic education, but was said to have loved sports. Also involved were the aforementioned Joachim Murat and Auguste Daniel Belliard. All three of these notable generals, by crossing that threshold, put themselves at the mercy of the Austrians and at risk of being torn apart. And military experts agree that standard instructions would have been don't admit anyone onto the bridge under a purported sign of truce, except only messages as to war updates from our own couriers. And if the enemy gets close enough, fire on them and destroy the bridge. The sheer audacity of it made the Austrians think, how could this ever be a trick? How do you take out such worthy adversaries who are unarmed? In that sense, you can pierce the veil of why there was such confusion, and why they waited to summon Awishberg. With Awishberg not being present, one of the French generals, apparently and very cleverly, suggested that Augsburg was off dealing with the matter of the truce. And it was some time after Augsburg arrived that the aforementioned Austrian sergeant, who was keen to the strategy, tried to set fire to some of the explosives. Belieben has the savvy sergeant telling his superior, Prince, you've been deceived. Here are the French. But when the attempt to ignite the bridge was made, General Lahn got right in the middle of it and appealed to Augsburg's aristocratic sense and got the sergeant arrested. Lahn then approached a nearby cannon, sat on top of it, straddling it, and continued to exchange pleasantries with the Austrians while smoking his pipe. Now that's a symbolic image, with the power between his legs. With such distractions, Marshal Odeno, and his famous grenadiers made it onto the bridge, and they were the ones to most likely have gotten rid of all the explosives that rigged the bridge. After all this is relayed to Prince André, André knew what he had to do. In his mind was already playing fire and glory, namely the battle that he would have to face. It was like music in his mind. He explained to his friend the diplomat ...that he was off and leaving for the army. Belibin responded that Andrei shouldn't leave so quickly... ...that he had permission to stay in comfort for a few more days. Belibin's diplomatic mind realizes that Cotuzo's army is facing peril... ...namely the onslaught of Napoleon's vanguard. They are marching with momentum, this rolling thunder. He voices that Andrei's intentions are heroic... He makes a pitch to have André stay by calling him a philosophe, a French philosopher of the Enlightenment on intellectual and social issues like Rousseau or Voltaire. He's making the point that André could be one of those who steers society if left alive. And more than Bilibin making that argument, it's Tolstoy behind that, of course. Bilibin begs André to come with him to their next destination, Olmutz. Another city, which is also in the Czech Republic. It's where the Austrian court is relocating from Brum. And Belibin puts it bluntly and realistically. And says, by the time you get to Kutuzov, there will either be a truce that has been concluded, or defeat and disgrace await. Andrei relays that he will not argue about it, and that he is going to save the army. Belieben then can only relay, Dear friend, you are a hero.